Our sermon text this morning is Ruth chapter 3, and we'll be zeroing in on verses 1 to 5 of Ruth 3. Again, Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. This is God's word. Listen to it. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have recorded it in scripture. We thank you that you have preserved it and that we have it before us this morning. And we ask, O Lord, that you would teach us and train us, that you would transform us by your word. And we ask as well, O Lord, that you would give us rest. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I think that it is safe to say, (laughs) because I know human nature, that most of you, most of us, have probably seen a matchmaker at work. And some of you may be in relationships that are the result of someone who has set you up with somebody else. Some of you have more than likely played the role of matchmaker in someone else's life. Now there is a certain type of person who absolutely loves to do this kind of thing. They love to find people who are without a mate and find another person who is without a mate and bring them together. And your view of a matchmaker largely depends on how it has worked out for you. You may see them as meddlesome. That probably means that when you were matched up with someone, it didn't work out. Or you may see them as a great help, which probably means that you were indeed helped. And if we in our circles believed in patron saints, then Naomi would indeed be the patron saint of the matchmaker. And you see this in this passage. You see... Uh, or as we saw in last week's passage, the wheels were already starting to turn in Naomi's mind, weren't they? When she found out with whom it was that that Ruth had, had gleaned, the fields in whom she had gleaned. And Naomi immediately makes the connection that this man is a kinsman, he is a redeemer. And you can see there's a hint about what is going to come down the pike here. There's a hint of what Naomi is up to already in chapter 2. She says he's our kinsman redeemer. And then she says, she sort of contradicts uh, an order that, that Boaz has given to Ruth to work with his young men. She says, no, it is better that you work with his young women. Perhaps the scheme has already started to take place. And Naomi is working it out. Well, in these first few, few verses of chapter 3, the plan has fully matured in Naomi's mind. And she presents it to Ruth. Now matchmakers' plans are also, uh, often questionable. 
If you look at what some, some matchmakers have done, if you think about in your own life, if you were set up by somebody else, you may think, boy, that was, that was really questionable. But this plan of Naomi's, it's downright risky. There's inherent danger in what Naomi is proposing for Ruth to do. She is telling Ruth to go down to the threshing floor, out on the outskirts of town, away from the sentries of the city, away from protection, to go down to the dark, to visit this man. It's a risky venture that she is sending her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law out upon. It could result in Ruth being harmed on her way. It could result in her being harmed when she arrives there in the dark. It could result in Boaz rejecting her because of the forwardness of Ruth's actions. But I think that Naomi has seen what God is doing. I think she has seen the hand of God in in all that has transpired up to this point. God visiting his people in Bethlehem, providing a harvest, bringing them back to the promised land. God causing Ruth to end up in the fields of Boaz, their kinsman, Redeemer. And so Naomi is emboldened by all of these things. And she sends her daughter down. She is convinced that the risk... The risks that Ruth will encounter were far outweighed by the hope that Boaz will see what is going on and respond well to it. And before Naomi gives the, the plan to her daughter-in-law, she gives her the reason. She's seeking rest for Ruth. She's seeking rest for her. She wants it to be well with her. She wants Ruth to have peace. I think that it's safe to say that Naomi cares for Ruth. And she's willing to be used by God so that Ruth might have rest. And so as we go through these five verses, I would ask you to think on this. God promises rest for his people. And he he provides it for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. God promises rest for you. And he provides it to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've divided this brief passage up into basically three sections. The reason for Naomi's plan, verse 1. The plan itself, verses 2 to 5. And then I want to just zero in on true rest and what it means. The reason for Naomi's plan, the plan itself, and true rest. Well, let's look first at this reason for Naomi's plan. We've already mentioned it. The matchmaker in Naomi has come out as she sees the opportunity that God has put before them. Ruth is young and unmarried. Boaz, he's an honorable man. He's unmarried. He's wealthy. He can protect and provide for Ruth. And the abundance of food that he sent home with Ruth on that first day of harvesting is evidence that he cares for her. And so Naomi wants to take advantage of his his good wishes, his good intentions, and his apparent affection. And so Naomi has hatched this bold plan for Ruth to win Boaz's heart. But why? Why should she do it? Why should she go to all this trouble? Why should she potentially put Ruth in harm's way? She obviously loves Ruth. Why would she do this? Well, you remember back in chapter 1 when Naomi is leaving Moab. And she tries to get Ruth and Orpah to to stay behind. And she tells them to return to their mothers. And then she prays for them. In verses 8 and 9, she says this in these verses. 
Go return each of you to her mother's house. And then he prays, may the Lord, then she prays, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her, her husband. And then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And you'll remember that indeed Orpah does return. She goes back to the house of her mother. She's seeking a husband in her land. But Ruth continues on with her mother-in-law. Naomi wants her daughters-in-law to find rest. She wants them to find husbands so that they can have permanent and stable homes, so that they can be protected, so that they don't have cares in the world. That is her desire. But Ruth decides to throw in her lot with Naomi. And as Boaz put it in chapter 2, she was seeking refuge. Ultimately, she was seeking refuge under the wings of the Lord, under the wings of the Almighty, the God of Israel. And this word that is translated rest in verses 1, 9 and in chapter 3, 1 is synonymous in the Bible with the promised land. It's synonymous. It's used interchangeably. In Psalm 95, verse 11, speaking of Israel's rebellion outside of the promised land, God says to them, Therefore I swore in my wrath, you shall not enter my rest. You shall not enter the promised land. His place of rest. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 9, speaking to the Israelites just before they were about to go in, God refers to the promised land as the rest and the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving to you to inherit. In the Old Testament, to gain rest is to enter the promised land. It is the heavenly picture for the Israelites. It is what we think of when we think of heaven. And a rest from all of our labors. This is how they viewed the promised land. And so, by embracing Yahweh, by going into the promised land, Ruth was entering into a place of permanence and stability, a place of rest. She didn't have to worry or trouble herself about the future. But, since she's been in the promised land, what has she been doing? She's been laboring every day. Every day except the Sabbath, she has gone to the fields and labored, gleaning, working, providing for her mother-in-law and herself. And so Naomi wants Ruth to have a resting place, and she knows the only way that can happen is for Ruth to marry. So let's turn now and look at this plan, this scheme that Naomi has come up with. She wants Ruth to marry, and there's no better candidate in Naomi's mind than Boaz. So Naomi concocts this surprising scheme for Ruth to carry out in the hope that it will result in marriage. And so having told Ruth the goal of her plan, or excuse me, the reason for her plan, she gives her the goal, Boaz. She wants Ruth to go after Boaz. And in verse 2, Naomi reminds Ruth that Boaz is a close relative of theirs. He's a redeemer. And then she tells Ruth that Boaz will be winnowing barley that night at the threshing floor. You see, all the, the barley had been threshed. It had been, it had been beaten. All the husks had come away from the kernels. There was nothing but chaff now and the kernels lying on the, on the threshing room floor. And so the winning, winnowing of, of the barley, the winnowing of the grain, was a joyous occasion for people in the ancient Near East. It was joyous because it marked the end of the harvest season. And they would go out with these big rakes, these big pitchforks, and they would cast 
the barley, the, the, the chaff, and the, and the grain into the air. And on a good breezy day, the wind would carry the chaff away, and the grain would fall right back down to the floor. And then all they had to do was heap it up and gather it together and take it home. It was indeed a festive and joyous occasion. And often there were feasts to celebrate this. And Naomi's plan was to use this happy event to Ruth's advantage. So Naomi commands Ruth. What does she say? Go and wash yourself. Put on perfume. And then she told her that she needed to get dressed up. She needed to present herself in an attractive way to Boaz. And then Ruth was to go down to the threshing floor at night to remain hidden until Boaz was finished eating and drinking. See, Ruth was not to allow herself to be seen by the people. But she needed to see very closely, very specifically, where Boaz lay down. She didn't want to go up to the wrong man. What a surprise that would have been. It was surprise enough for Boaz. Ruth needed to speak to Boaz privately. She needed to meet with him privately. And so she is to go down under the cover of darkness. It could only happen after the festivities had died down. But it would not do for others to see what Ruth is doing, what she's carrying out, this plan. And so after Boaz went to sleep, Ruth was to go to him to uncover his feet and to lay down at his feet and wait for him to wake up and tell her what to do. And then she says, very simply, all that you have commanded me to do, I will do. Now, if you find yourself scratching your head here, if you find yourself wondering, what is going on in this passage? What is is Naomi commanding Ruth to do? You're not alone. And the commentators are all over the place on this. It's very difficult for us in, in our modern day to understand what these ancient folks are doing. And so some commentators see this as a very suggestive plan, very suggestive actions. There's, uh, they're full of innuendo. And the challenge of trying to interpret this passage is that there are terms that are used in this passage of Scripture that are used very seldomly elsewhere in Scripture. And so, speculation seems to be the rule with regard to this passage. But let me say it clearly. There is no need to assume that what Naomi is suggesting for Ruth to do is improper. There's no reason to assume that, although it has been assumed by many people. You see, we've already seen, Boaz has demonstrated that he is an honorable man. He has demonstrated that he has great care for Ruth. He provides for her, he takes care of her, he wants to protect her. There's no need to think that he will take advantage of her. Naomi herself is also greatly concerned for Ruth, isn't she? Naomi told Ruth to work with Boaz's young women instead of his young men because of her safety. So the circumstances here are unusual to be sure, but Naomi knows that Boaz is an honorable man, that he will not take advantage of her, and that the, and that the rewards for this scheme outweigh the risks. The boldness of Naomi's plan, and it must be bold if it is to work. The boldness of this plan will ensure that Boaz knows without question that Ruth wants him to marry her. And so what this is, what it amounts to, and we'll see it next week a little more clearly, this is a marriage proposal. Ruth is going to Boaz, and she is making it known that she wants him to marry her. 
And so everything that Naomi had commanded her to do, the washing, the perfume, the nice clothing, going to him at the threshing floor, it all was designed to communicate this clearly to Boaz that she wants Boaz to make her his wife. It's a great amount of trouble to go to. And it's hard for us to understand in our culture. Well, let's look for a moment at the idea of true rest because this is the goal that Naomi has for Ruth. If entering the promised land means entering into God's rest, then why is Naomi going to all this uh, trouble? Why is she trying so hard to find a husband for Ruth so that she might have rest? If the promised land equals rest, why is she doing this? Well, one answer could be that the promised land offered spiritual rest, but that there were still physical labors. And so Naomi's scheme offers Ruth physical rest. She wouldn't have to go out to the fields to glean anymore if Boaz were her husband. And there may be some truth to this uh, idea, this answer. The Israelites certainly had physical labors to carry out once they entered into the promised land, didn't they? Their, their, Their work was not over. But what were they commanded to do? What was the primary goal that they had? The primary objective upon entering the promised land was to root out all of the native peoples in the land. Specifically, they were to root out the idols and the false pagan worship that was present in the land of Canaan. And even so, even though this was physical labor, the reason was spiritual. It was for their spiritual good that they carried out this physical labor. They had to get rid of the idols. God did not want them to be tempted. And the temptation to worship these idols was severe. And they constantly failed. And so you see, in the Bible, rest has both physical and spiritual connotations. It has an impact on you, physically and spiritually. It revives your your flesh, but it also revives your soul. And so when we rest from our physical labors, we have, we receive a spiritual benefit, don't we? And the problem is, just like with ancient Israel, we are never through with our labors as long as we live on this earth. Unless Jesus comes back while we're still alive, we will have labors. You know this to be true. Statistics tell me that over half of you will not take all of your vacation days this year. Statistics tell me that 30% of you will take less than half of your vacation days this year. And that wouldn't be so bad if we were living in a country like Brazil, where they get an average of 41 days off a year. But in the U.S., the average worker gets 25 days. That includes holidays and vacation time. So you can do the math there. We don't know the meaning of rest. And part of that is due to this idea, we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school, this idea of the Protestant work ethic, that we must work and we must strive. And there is, there's truth to that. But have we taken it too far? Has work itself become an idol to us? Do we think that we are indispensable? Do we think that nothing can be done without us doing it? We are busy. We have lost the ability to rest and to have peace and calm. And this is not a complaint against hard work. The Bible commands it. Paul says, if you do not work, you will not eat. He commands labor. 
And each of us has been called to our own labors, and we are to do them for God's glory. And yet, and yet, we should be as deliberate about our rest in the Lord as we are about our work and about our labors. You see, you were designed by God. You were created by God to need rest. Before the fall of Adam, God instituted the Sabbath. You need rest. You need physical rest. You need spiritual rest. Jesus, when he walked among the disciples, he commanded his disciples to rest. In Mark chapter 6, verse 31, he said, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Jesus himself rested. We see this in, on numerous occasions in the Bible. He would get away from the crowds. He would go up into the hills. He would pray to his heavenly Father. And we are in no less need of rest than Jesus' disciples. And if Jesus himself needed rest, how can we say that we do not? But don't miss what rest implies. Yes, sleep. <laughs> Lay down. Cease from your physical labors. But don't miss what else is implied here. Time with God. Jesus would go off to be alone so that he could pray. In Psalm 46, verse 10, God commands, Be still and know that I am God. You see, we don't get spiritual rest simply by being quiet. Our ability to be still, to be at rest, is based on our knowledge of who God is. You cannot rest in a true sense unless you know that God is there to provide for you, that he will take care of you, that he will protect you while you're at rest, that he will provide for your every need. And if you don't believe that, you can never rest. But if you do, if you trust in the Lord, you recognize that your time of rest is not going to result in some sort of detriment. It's not going to result in the work being undone. It's not going to result in the, the business uh, in which you work falling apart. You are not God. And even God himself rested at the end of his creation. It wasn't enough for Ruth simply to enter the promised land. She needed more than that. She needed more to find rest. She needed to be redeemed. True rest from our souls does not come from within ourselves. It comes from outside. Ruth's need for a redeemer is proof that she could not find rest in herself. But Boaz simply pointed the way to the great redeemer, Jesus Christ. What is the significance of the fact that Boaz is in the genealogy of Jesus? He pointed the way to Jesus. You cannot have true rest. You cannot have safety. You cannot have security. You cannot have a place of permanence, of quietness, or of peace without trusting in Jesus Christ. You cannot have it. Many people seek it, but it cannot be found apart from Jesus. And even those of us who believe, we struggle with resting in the Lord. And so I commend to you to take opportunities 
for quiet times, to pray, to read the scripture, be with the Lord, know that he is God. Revelation chapter 14 says that those who do not trust in Jesus will drink the wine of God's wrath. And it says they will never have rest, day or night. They will never have rest. But those who love Jesus, those who die in the Lord, will be blessed and they will have rest from their labors. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, you will never know rest. You will never know peace. You will never know security. Instead, you will only ever know torment and the wrath of God. But Jesus promises that he will take your burden upon himself. He has borne your wrath if you profess faith in him. If you know Christ, trust in him. He will lead you beside quiet waters. He will give you good food to sustain you. He will give you peace. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you have not put your faith in Him, if you not trusted in Him, you will not know peace. And so the Bible commands you to repent of your sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus, to call upon His name, to seek salvation while it may be found. Come to Him, all you who are weary and labor, and Jesus Christ will give you rest. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we who do not know the meaning of rest come to you seeking it now. We ask, O Lord, for your mercy and your grace that you would teach us to seek stillness and quiet, to hear your voice and to follow you all the days of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.